Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Our guest today is Professor Ken Strain, who cured his chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, by changing what he ate. Being an experimental physics professor who helped to discover gravitational waves for the first time a few years ago, he set about finding out why he was healed by changing what he ate. Call me an intellectual snob, but when a physics professor says things, I tend to listen, and I did. It's an amazing story and very personal to me because I benefited hugely from Ken's wide reading in nutrition. I think we'd all like a wise mentor who can pick the right dusty old book off the shelf that contains answers to live by. I was lucky enough to have Ken to point me in the right direction. I hope you enjoy. Ken wanted me to make it clear that on the subject of nutrition, he is not speaking in a professional capacity. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. Paleocanteen.co.uk is the UK's one-stop paleo and low-carb food provider where you can get restaurant-quality meals, grass-fed Scottish beef and lamb and outdoor bread pork delivered chilled to your door. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Okay, so we are recording, and I'm very happy to have uh, with us today Professor Ken Strain, who's an experimental physicist. Uh, he's a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and the Institute of Physics, and is the Deputy Director of the Institute for Gravitational Research at the University of Glasgow here in Scotland. He's an external scientific member of the Max Planck Institute for Gravitational Physics, also known as the Albert Einstein Institute in Potsdam. And his research interests include development of techniques for detecting gravitational radiation from astrophysical sources. And on the side, there's a large interest in nutrition science too. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Ali. It's great to be talking to you. So... I'm not sure if I've ever explained before that I used to um, be into physics and engineering in that I did my undergraduate degree in physics at uh, the University of Glasgow and um, worked in a laser factory for a few years as a kind of um, trainee Bond villain or something and, uh, and then started to do a PhD in physics. And in the end, I was physically there for the full term um, of, the, of the funding, but I never got the PhD. And partly it was because um, my health wasn't very good and I was able to positively affect it, really turn it around by changing the way I ate um, at that time. And we know each other because... You were my lecturer sometimes in, during my undergraduate degree, and then you were my second supervisor um, during my PhD. And 
we um we ended up so <laughs> what happened was we would be uh, in a meeting or something and the subject of nutrition or food might come up out of nowhere and you would say something like five a day is uh completely made up by marketing people there's no really solid evidence that it's good for you or you would say something like margarine isn't food or you would say something like there's no good evidence that whole grains do you any good whatsoever and so you know i was i was kind of taken aback because you know frankly you expect to hear stuff like that from maybe a fringe uh element who frequent um, health food shops or supplement shops or something like that. And you maybe think, okay, well, maybe they've got a point, but I'm not really going to look into it very seriously. And I'm, maybe I'm a bit of an intellectual snob in this regard, but when a professor of experimental physics says it, I'm kind of more inclined to stop and think, well, why, why, why are they saying that? And um, so I started asking you questions and um, you would point me towards the papers and the, the blogs that had helped you make sense of it. And really, the more I dug, the more I realized that um, there was all sorts of mistakes in the general understanding of nutrition. I mean, yes. you start, you, you, why don't you tell us how... You got into it in the first place. So yeah, I think I think that's that's the other background, and I, I, I you know I don't think I've ever gone through this with you um, in the sense that I'm going to uh, just in the next few minutes. But um, you know, while you were finishing your undergraduate and um, uh, probably at the start working at uh, the laser company, um, I was I was uh, being very ill. Um, I I, um, I was off work for about nine months, maybe a bit longer. Um, and there were points where during that period where um, I, you know, to walk 100 meters was was an enormous struggle. I remember one January where I just had to move uh, because I would go crazy if I if I didn't just move. But but 100 meters was all I could could manage. Um, and I, I had seen a, a whole pile of doctors who, uh, ranging from. Um, unhelpful and not really trying to trying very very hard indeed um, to to be helpful um, uh, but none of the many many hundreds of tests uh, yield any yielded any real clue and I my memory was extremely bad at that point uh, my short-term memory was was uh, uh, like someone with with uh, pronounced dementia or something like that it was it would, I would just forget everything I could read a paragraph and um, I know, so I can't actually remember what happened, but I do remember, I think it was actually a, 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 a tweet by uh, Tim Noakes that reminded me of this, um, that I had uh, watched about the same time as, as he had made his dietary discovery, um, um, 2010 or so. I, I'd, I'd watched, uh, for some reason I have no idea, um, um, an NIH uh, conference on video um, um, mainly about omega threes, but but about the the health of the I think it was a two day conference about the health of the U.S. Army in general, 
and you know that that was identified as the least fit group of young adult males in the world um, by by the people running by I think it was the chief military general running the uh, running the conference, and it it somehow struck me that uh, that really it was um, something to do with diet that had you know was having a huge effect. Um, and I'm not, I, I, I don't really remember the, the thought processes that went through my head, but the net result was uh, in conjunction with a very lucky uh, event where one of the uh, endocrinologists that I saw took me into a hospital for a 72-hour fast um, and doing some tests throughout that. And I suddenly discovered that it was actually not very difficult to do a 72-hour fast, even as someone who wasn't very well and uh, had been... Uh, eating plenty of you know healthy whole carbohydrates and, and so on for for years, uh, and that gave me the freedom to to really throw away everything I knew. And uh, eight weeks later, I, I was running very slowly, ten kilometres. Um, maybe nine weeks later, something in that order. Um, and it took a long time for all the uh, negative effects, mainly autoimmune and uh, you know allergies and asthma to disappear several years um, but but now they have and now there's nothing wrong that I'm aware of um, allergies that I've had since five years old or, or before are gone um, and so I saw you um, as you know I was your, your second PhD supervisor so it was part of my my role to make sure that you were making progress and and uh, doing good work I'd also of course uh, you know, some duty of care for for your uh, <laughs> your your life in general, um, and that put me in quite a difficult position because I knew that um, there was a good chance, or I felt there was a good chance that it was a similar kind of problem. Because in the meantime, I'd read about three thousand papers on various aspects of uh, nutrition related, so all the way from biochemistry through to through to nutrition, and uh, saw at least some of the range of possibilities for things that could go wrong and, and things that could make changes. And um, I, I found it very difficult to know exactly what to say to you because, um, you know, I'm not a doctor and I can't take responsibility for someone's health and it would be wrong really to do that, um, especially when there is a formal professional uh, relationship there. Um, but on the other hand, um, I felt that it was okay to say some things like the examples that you gave that would make you go away and read uh, yourself. And, you know, it was great to see your uh, profound, uh, you know, recovery, um, you know, to an enormous extent over, over, over the, the following roughly year or, or so, which was, which was, uh, uh, which was, it was great to even feel that I had the slightest little uh, input to that. Well, you definitely did. And, um, I mean, I think, I can't remember when your story filtered through to me and all that, but I mean, it is remarkable, you know, you were facing potentially not working again in your forties and yeah. then just months later after diving into the literature, having kind of got a couple of little threads about how you could um, maybe change direction you just changed how you ate 
and were able to run a 10k having struggled struggled to walk 100 meters yeah. i mean it's it's absolutely remarkable it, it was it was profound i mean my legs were still pretty weak so it was a very slow run i remember that but my um um metabolism had had changed there were there were some quite um you know, so it's always difficult because how much of it is, is, is psychological and how much of it is feeling you can't do something. But there, there were some uh, very quantitative uh, features to it. So one, one of the things that I was diagnosed with was the PFO, patent for aminopala in my, my heart. So that's, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a safety bypass mechanism that when your body wants less oxygen, it, this thing opens up and bypasses um, your, your lungs to some extent. Um, and you you can tell I'd had an echocardiogram, so I knew my uh, ventricle, left ventricle volume. And if you know that accurately, and you measure your pulse and the uh, your, your blood pressure, you can work out your, your your circulation. And occasionally, I would faint. And at times when I was fainting, it could be something like I think three liters a minute, which is it's meant to be about seven liters a minute in an adult male. And now it's seven liters a minute. Hmm. So I've not had a repeat echocardiogram to check that the PFO has closed up, but I think it pretty much has to have. <laughs> yeah. So there's some quite you know, uh, quantitative and, and concrete uh, parts of it. And another aspect was uh, the allergies. And um, so immunoglobulin E is um, the, the uh, standard uh, uh, measure of... of uh, you know, if you're looking for allergies and you get blood tests and measure the amount of immunoglobulin E specific to particular allergens or, or the total. And um, my, myself and my GP noticed that my total um, in IgE was, was sort of increasing and increasing and increasing beyond levels that are even discussed in papers. So the, the highest number I had was 3,750 IU per, per milliliter. And if you, look in, if you look up the literature, you know, hundreds, quite high. Uh, or 200 and and um, it had a couple of effects one that it meant that all the allergy tests I had were useless because if I showed up as allergic a little bit allergic to everything and so hmm. couldn't, there, was, there was no discrimination in the tests the blood tests um, um, but uh, now a few years later there's 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 nothing you know I used to have hay fever it's gone I used to have dust allergies they've gone I used to have um, slightly i think they're called anaphylactoid uh, um, reactions where i get swelling lips and uh, hives and things like that i used to have that randomly after about every 10th meal or something like that no matter what i'd eat there'd be something that would trigger that and only really pretty much completely eliminating plants um i think i've, I've tried eliminating every food I don't think there's anything that I haven't at one time or other tried eliminating. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that just eliminating one or two or three things at the same time doesn't work. No. It's basically do the other way. You've got to eliminate everything and then uh, not eat for, for, you know, for a week or something and then eat very conservatively one thing at a time until you start getting problems again. Yeah. But now I can eat things that uh, certainly cause reactions before with small quantities and occasionally without the slightest trouble. That's really fascinating. And I, and it's, it's, um, it's great to, you know, hear anyone who's wanting to measure quantitatively what's going on, because I think the best you can get a lot of the time at the moment, since there's not much in the way of, uh, impetus from, you know, drug companies or 
people in general to do large scale studies on diets, elimination diets, and that sort of thing. So each individual has to be the, their own kind of guinea pig in their own science lab. And um, it's much harder in that respect to go beyond just being able to say, I feel better. So therefore, I'm going to keep doing this. You know, it's other people just have to rely on um, your subjective feeling of how good you felt before and how good you feel after. So it's good to it's good to have a, a sort of objective measure as well that you're able to say, well, I had this. I, I was on sort of um, sleep mode or um, safe mode or something, and so you know my heart was pumping less than half of the amount of blood that that it usually yeah. does. My my immune system was was um, hyper alert because I was I was so poorly. And now, now, now my heart's fine, and now my immune system's fine, um, mm-hmm. and it's measurable. It's great. Um, and you know, you're talking about what I got into, and that elimination diet was 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 huge for me because when when I looked around at the the kind of sources of information that you'd pointed me towards, I realised that that was the main way that people were affecting their health in the in the biggest way. You know, the, there was a lot of people on the fringes kind of talking about supplements or um, <clears throat> various other kind of adjunct therapies and that sort of thing. Um, but food seemed to be the thing that when people struck gold, it was really, it was really powerful. So I think you're, you're, you're bang on when you say the elimination diet is, has to be from, you know, eating nothing but very unreactive foods. I think it surprised me and it surprises a lot of people to find out that the, the least reactive foods are uh, meat, really. And mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I think that's actually not surprising to allergy doctors um, because, aside from this horrible uh, Lyme disease related um, alpha galactose. Um, yeah, that's allergy. a tick that can bite you. It's particularly yeah. prevalent in the eastern seaboard of America, isn't yeah. it? And you that's can become right. allergic to red meat. Yeah, but um, the the allergy doctor that I saw had uh, actually holds a record for the highest level of IgE for that particular allergen in Europe. Uh, I did at the time, um, and and I was tested for that because I had some tick bites and had some rather bad reactions afterwards. Uh, but it wasn't that, thankfully, because that would have been a real disaster. Yeah. But I think uh, that especially for children with very strong allergies, that um, lamb-based foods have traditionally been uh, been one of the things that's been tried because of the complete nutrition and um, really low levels of, um, um, of allergens. I, I never quite understood why it was lamb rather than beef, but, but um, at least I was told that that was, that was the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, you, you mentioned kind of in passing before that it was getting rid of all plants, and I think for the casual listener, like it was for me when I first heard something like that, it was, it sounded, it sounded quite out there, you know, the idea that you just wouldn't eat any plants. And I wasn't even sure what that meant, you know, did it mean that you, like, you, you, do, you, do you mean even green leafy veg? Do you mean, surely, surely you don't mean avocados, surely you can have some strawberries, all that stuff. But no, what you're saying is that, You've you've found that the the the, the biggest um, gains for you, uh, or maybe not the biggest gains, but 
you felt the best when you just eat meat, particularly red meat? So that was a very slow drift into that, but I, I was definitely having reactions when I had certain plant foods. So I, I could feel like sore joints and, and things like that. And they would go away if I didn't eat certain things for a while. And they would come back if I ate them again. So that was, that was pretty clear. Um, what, but, um, what, what plants do you think were associated with joint pain? Well, um, certainly anything with wheat in it. Um, anything related to wheat or, or I don't, I, mean, I don't have um, celiac disease, but I mean, I, who knows whether I've got some level of, of gluten intolerance or whether it's just, I think the, the, uh, the gluten gliadin effect on the, um, on the gut kind of messes up anything, uh, any, any sort of, uh, approach you might have, because if there, if, if there's something that's getting into your bloodstream, you can't have an allergic reaction really, unless from a food, unless it gets into, unless it's on your, on your mouth or if it gets into your bloodstream. Um, and so I think having elevated, uh, intestinal permeability, uh, must be a big modulator of any reactions to, to, to food allergens, uh, especially delayed. And, and my, my reactions were typically delayed, maybe half an hour, an hour after eating food. It wasn't instant. I mean, occasionally I would have reactions in my mouth where you know, my lips would swell up or something like that. And that was, um, I don't know, I, I never traced what that was. I think it, it was perhaps contaminants in food. Um, uh, because I had a latex allergy, quite a bad latex allergy, so I had to really carefully avoid uh, and I wonder if some of the, some foods had um, I couldn't eat tropical fruits, but maybe there were some uh, traces of tropical fruit in, in foods that there shouldn't have been, and um, they would they would uh, almost instantly cause my my lips to swell up, uh, which was quite scary. And I remember the last time I ate um, pineapple because my throat started to swell up, and that was that was definitely very scary. You think am I good to breathe in a couple of minutes or not? But it. it um, it settled down, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that the trouble is that if you eat wheat and it affects your intestinal permeability, then it might not be the wheat itself. It might be something else you're eating at the same time that's getting into your bloodstream and triggering an allergy. And I, I think that's the problem. It's just too, um, it's just too uh, complicated um, to, to figure out what's going on, um, even if you try very hard, you know, even if, as, as when I was, 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 when I was off ill, off work ill, um, you know, when I wasn't really doing much else, um, um, apart from trying to eat things that didn't make me feel bad and, and, uh, and trying to sleep. And um, it, um, it, you know, it, it, there wasn't any obvious solution. And then it was only really when I hit on just eating nothing much but meat. And it took, it took a long while to get there. So I got a, I got a lot better before I did that, but, uh, but not everything in terms, except allergies. The allergies took a lot longer to sort out. Um, and I think there might have been quite a big element of um, waiting for my uh, background level of uh, linoleic acid, omega-6 stored in my fat deposits. Um, which, because of course, when I, I I was losing weight at that point because I wasn't eating um, quite as much uh, food as I'd need to maintain weight. So um, my my weight was dropping, and that means I was releasing uh, fat stores. And I probably because I used to eat vegetable oil, 
you know, most people do. I probably had, you know, some 20% of my fat stores were probably omega-6. And it, I'm guessing it took six months, a year, 18 months for that to, to drop down. Um, and uh, since it's well known that omega-6s cause inflammation and probably affect, well, they definitely affect mast cells, which are the heart of allergic reactions, um, that um, I imagine that the immune system had to be given its time to calm, to calm down. And then all the, uh, the sort of B cells, they, they live for, I think, the half-life of the 90 days. And so if you trigger an allergy, you, you get a huge uh, upsurge in the numbers of B cells. Um, and that means you're very susceptible to very small amounts of an allergen until, until they've died away, when that could be you know, six months, a year. Yeah. I think it just takes time. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's a couple of things there that people might find interesting is that if you cut down on eating um, vegetable oils and starchy carbohydrates, refined flour, sugar, then you enter a kind of ketogenic state where you're your, um, your liver's making ketones from fat. And so it's an alternative fuel source to glucose. And there's plenty of research suggesting that on that kind of eating regime, you get a lower appetite than compared to when you're eating all the stuff that you've cut out. And not only that, but your ability to wick away your own fat stores is um, turned on essentially so that you you can quite easily uh, take energy from the, you know, even a skinny marathon runner has what, 40, 50,000 calories there in fat. So, you know, your appetite went down, you started using your fat stores um, and it wasn't particularly weight loss you were going for, but that was just an effect. Uh-huh. And then talking about omega-6 fat or linoleic acid, um, linoleic acid is a type of omega-6 fat, which is found in all foods uh, all whole foods, um, but in varying quantities. So uh, you could get it maybe in the one or two percent range in grass-fed beef, and then all the way up to fifty or sixty percent in something like sunflower oil. And um, the, the the there's a lot of research out there, and we've um, interviewed Tucker Goodrich. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure when that one's going to be released, but he's got a lot to say about this. Um, about how he's, he's, he's the person in the world who has the, the best story to tell on, on linoleic acid for sure. Yeah, it's amazing, really. Yeah. Um, and that kind of the, the long and short of it is that it gets into your, uh, your cells and um, causes damage to your body mm-hmm. uh, in a profound way. In, in, in many profound ways, that's, that's the point. And um, I mean, as you know, I've, I've read up a huge amount on that. And I first encountered uh, uh, Dr. Goodrich um, on uh, Peter uh, Hyperlipid's blog um, in the, in the uh, discussions of, a, of a, uh, one of the posts. Um, and I, I remember having many points of confusion where, you know, I'd, I'd kind of three quarters of the story clear in my head from a lot of the fundamental biochemistry papers through to some of the effects on, 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 uh, you know, people. Um, but there were a lot of gaps and, uh, um, uh, Tucker basically pointed to his, uh, yelling stop 
uh, blog, and there were all the answers. Every single every single gap had, was was already filled. If I if I'd only read there, I would have uh, been about a year ahead of, of of where I was, which was which was great. I'm, I mean, I don't regret having done all the study because um, it really makes you. I mean, you really have to work through it to see how how just dreadful uh, the effects of of really what's an overdose. And I think what one of the I, I can't remember if it's in the hyperlipid blog or or but some so I can't I think it was it was Peter who who, who wrote this but the, certainly the message of one of the the, um, the posts there was well you know something so bad for you why do we eat so much of it what, what and and um, so if you compare so it's really especially rancid omega six oils whether they are rancid when you you know, when you eat them because you're eating something that's been deep fried in a, in a, from a takeaway that's that's used the oil for you know a week or a month or whatever, um, and it's you know it's rancid before you eat it, or whether it just goes rancid because of your blood temperature. If it's not protected by vitamin E, it peroxidizes, goes rancid very quickly. Um, and um, but if 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 I if I give you some rancid fish oil, some omega three, you probably wouldn't want to. You probably wouldn't want to consume it because we find that you know quite most people find that quite an offensive uh, smell, and and we we really don't want to consume it. But uh, most people really love the the uh, the uh, odors that you get from rancid omega six. Oh, it's part of the baking smells, for example. Um, there's a lot of and so why would it be that we we actually find something that's harmful attractive? And I, the only explanation I can come up with that's even even convinces me a little bit is that um, it's because there wasn't pretty much of it in our diet and we didn't need the protection because there was no way we could, until the modern uh, processed food, there was no way we could get too much of it uh, to cause damage. And so we don't have a protection mechanism. Um, and I know, I know you said that, for example, if you eat, uh, let's say pork, because pork, uh, especially modern farmed uh, pork, can, can have quite high levels of linoleic acid, but I think if you went back to Paleolithic times, you wouldn't find any animal that you'd want to eat that would have high levels of omega six, because it's it's the, the I think pork it's mainly from uh, corn and other grains that fed that the omega six comes and of course those 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 are modern pig foods right and not and not natural pig foods and if you if you um, if you look in uh, other countries uh, where there's more traditional um, um, Raising of, of pigs, pork's actually a much much more healthy uh, food than it is typically in the UK, unless you unless you manage to find, you know, uh, properly pastured pork. Mm -hmm. But I think the, that's the only explanation I can I can have that it's it's a chemical that uh, the body actually uses as a signalling molecule. So it's one of the ways that uh, insulin resistance is regulated by. Um, by the interaction of, of uh, omega-6 in the mitochondria in your cells. And if um, you, you actually, um, um, the demand of your cells regulates the, the amount of uh, omega-6 in your body as a whole. And so it's a kind of feedback mechanism to tell your body how your mitochondria are doing. Um, and it doesn't make any sense that you would overwhelm a feedback mechanism like that by having much bigger concentrations um, coming in through your diet, and so I, I think that's the problem that we just we just really shouldn't be eating any any of that stuff beyond the 
bare minimum that you would get in something like grass-fed uh, beef. Yeah, that's kind of definitely a shout out to those two blogs, Hyperlipid, which is written by a veterinary surgeon uh, who got interested in nutrition because with his scientific background, uh, I think he helped his friend who was struggling badly with um, intestinal you know, um, problems and uh, was just getting information from the doctors to eat more fiber and it wasn't working, it was making her worse. So he, he scoured the literature, very quickly came up with uh, you know, the, the, um, the recommendation to actually cut fiber out and it made it, you know, she got better. And then he, he, was like, he was kind of hooked. He was like, well, how could this be so wrong? And ended up um, eating a high fat diet, low carbohydrate diet, writing a lot about that. And then Tucker Goodrich, who's got a blog called Yelling Stop, he um, he kind of picked up on that with coming from a different route, but trying to fix his own health, um, uh, which people can listen to on the other episode with him. But uh, yeah, it's fascinating kind of um, fascinating stories, and you know the, the the rationale that we don't find rancid omega six fat a uh, repulsive because it just wasn't there in the past in the quantities that we see it now. It's like those, those stories you hear about the, you know, those bird, flightless birds on the islands where people turn up and the birds are, you know, none the wiser. They're just looking at them. And the, even when they see um, the, the people killing all the other birds, they don't, you know, they don't suspect that it's going to be them next because they've got no reason to fear. Yeah. And um, it's it's got to a really kind of desperate situation, particularly in um, countries where the consumption of vegetable oils is really high. Yeah, which is well, which is nearly all the developed countries, and, and you know, it's it's now. I mean, it must be one of the cheapest, uh, apart from from wheat. It must be one of the cheapest sources of large numbers of calories and. I think the reason that it's great for processed foods is that um, when you when you kind of bake or cook with it, the, the foods have a long shelf life, and um, you know they're they're uh, kind of pre-rancidified, and also when they <laughs> when they deteriorate further, they don't produce bad smell, bad tastes, and bad smells. So yeah. you know, so they're they're uh, you could have things that are on the shelf for years, and people still find them tasty. Yeah, like the, the, the only thing that will survive a nuclear war is uh, cockroaches <laughs> and Twinkies. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> it's interesting you talk about a feedback loop and that's something that you kind of, I suppose most people don't think about very often, but you know, even if you go to reach, reach out and grab a glass of water, your hand is, the, you know, is, is moving towards it and your brain has to say, right, okay, you're close enough, now you can stop and pick up feedback loops all over the place and those are the con that's a conscious one but there's so many unconscious feedback loops going on at all times to keep your you know your temperature stable your this the level of sodium in your blood stable you keep you keep your awake all sorts of stuff and um what you were talking about is like one of the, the fundamentals which is the mitochondria which is like the little power station um which you have you know, trillions of inside inside of your 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 body, um, and and I remember 
you're talking about this a lot that really what was wrong with you you think was a mitochondrial failure mm-hmm. in large part yeah yeah there, there was there was something i think the the reason that my body wanted uh, you know uh, wanted to cut down the amount of oxygen available by reducing the circulation uh, was p- perhaps to protect the brain um you know, from, from, um, so, so the, the thing that, you know, every, everyone, everyone knows about, I mean, it's largely a myth, but everyone knows about the idea of, uh, uh oxidation being bad and antioxidants, you know, being there for, being there for good. And of course, antioxidants of exactly the right type, if you manage to get them into the cells in your body can, uh, stop damage, but that's, that's a much more complicated thing than, than people believe back in the 1970s, you know, I take a vitamin pill and you live longer, it doesn't work that way. Um, but, in, but the, the basic underlying idea that, um, yeah, you know, sadly, uh, life uh, like us relies on oxygen, and oxygen is a really dangerous element, chemical element, um, and it, it, you know, it rusts metal, and it, it does the equivalent process to us. It rusts, it rusts us from the inside out. Every take, time you take a breath of oxygen, a certain percentage of that oxygen ends up uh, forming uh, reactive oxygen species, which cause havoc, havoc in your in your um, cells. So, and that all happens at the mitochondria. And um, I mean, some cells in your body, it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, so things like your heart, your heart will keep on beating even if some cells die because your heart has to keep on beating. And there's not really much choice. You know, the heart, heart cardiac cells will burn any fuel they can get their hands on, ketones or fat or, or sugar or whatever. They're just not going to stop. Um, because they know that's game over and that's, you know, it's not a good strategy. But um, neurons, neurons are different. Uh, probably the extreme difference in your, your body in that, you know, neurons, um, it doesn't matter so much if they stop working for a while, as long as they don't die, right? We don't regenerate many, many of the neurons in the brains can't, can't regenerate. Some can, but many, many probably can't. And so if they die, that's it gone. And, you know, your brain function has taken a step down um, and so it's 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 definitely um, well known now that if you if you look inside the brain and if there's um, this is kind of in the theme of Alzheimer's being uh, type three dementia sorry type, type three diabetes dementia being type three diabetes um, and if you if you have uh, neurons in your, in your brain that, that are, are lacking energy because the mitochondria can't efficiently uh, burn. Uh, get the fuel to burn, then um, the um, the function uh, decreases, and they say that instead of dying, um, you know, running out of energy and dying, they save energy by sort of retracting some of the function away, um, and certainly that's what it felt like. Um, you know, when my memory wasn't working and and so on, it felt that the brain function just uh, sort of shrunk away from the inside, and um, uh, it was a, a very uh, horrible. Uh, uh, feeling, um, but um, the the uh, I'm pretty sure that that that, that the, um, the effect then out on the brain sends messages out in the body saying don't don't do this you know get less oxygen that means less less activity less energy spent and and you know less bad things happening um, and certainly that that's what it kind of felt like as an experience that that. Uh, my brain was telling my body to shut down as much as possible because there was there was a problem that uh, couldn't be solved by other means. I mean, I can't imagine what that must feel like when you're 
whole profession is based on the acuity of your brain. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty miserable. And the, 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 I think the most fortunate thing is that because my memory work, work wasn't working very well, I can't really remember quite how bad it was. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that, that's that's something of a relief, you know. I I have. Uh, I mean, obviously, when I, when I was unwell, people visited. Quite a lot of people visited, and you know, there are there are people that I cannot remember them visiting. I absolutely believe they did, and I just cannot remember. Yeah. Any of those it's because I've no just zero recollection of those of those events and and you know I don't know uh, um, but maybe implied in in your in your earlier statement was actually I I got a normally extremely good memory I mean I remember uh, very detailed points of conversations from from decades ago um, quite quite often they, they they come back to me in particular circumstances um, and so having this kind of blurry gap from you know a couple of years or three years long um, it was a very slow descent into it though I mean if I look back it was a 10 year descent very slow uh, including a couple of years where I had uh, migraines uh, optical migraines uh, every afternoon every work every workday afternoon uh, without fail Luckily, the lectures I gave as undergraduate physics were nearly always in the morning, so <laughs> I could actually see what I was looking at. And, and whereas in the middle of the afternoon, quite often I couldn't see what was in front of me. Dear, yeah. I mean, I've had I've had migraines since I was a child, and you know, changing the way I ate really cleared them up. When mm-hmm. I remember those early morning lectures and hearing about Fourier transforms, and uh, you seemed pretty sharp then. I would say that when I was doing the PhD, I would call your memory encyclopedic, actually. You know, there would be some question about a particular brand of electronics uh, component, and you would remember the make, model, and number, and just and you'd download it from your own brain. And, you know, I guess it's, it, it's fascinating how you fell ill and you relied on your own research skills, which was your job, to dig yourself out of the problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and then you just you know you you flourished after that and uh, stronger than ever and you know you you um, you are is it your deputy deputy of the Institute for Gravitational Research yeah, yeah. Uh, deputy director and um, I was hovering about there when the first discovery of gravitational waves was yeah. made. Yeah. And it was an amazing thing to see. I mean, for anyone who's never heard of that, you basically you've got um, if you hovered above these two sites in America, one in Louisiana, one in Washington State, you would see if you hovered above them in uh, in a helicopter, you would see two kind of L shapes, which are like um, yeah, kind of tunnels where you've got laser light traveling to um, very large sort of tens of kilograms polished mirrors at the ends of the arms and the light goes up in the arms and back down and um and meets itself again and through that kind of large scale machinery you can tell whether a gravitational wave has passed through and i mean i'm not sure that we're ever gonna you know you'd ever be able to sort of condense it down in a in a few minutes to make it um Broadly understandable. It's very complicated, and uh, you know, yeah, yeah. It, 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 
the thing about it is that the, it involves the, the biggest scales because you know we, we're seeing uh, things that are billion light years away or, or of that order across the universe and then we have two two black holes spin around each other they've been spinning around each other since you know probably since they were formed billions of years ago and then um, because they're radiating energy uh, radiating gravitational waves out the orbits shrink every time they go around the orbit shrinks a bit and if you wait long enough they end up crashing together and they crash together at a good fraction of the speed of light um, now these are things that are, to give you an idea of scale, they're probably about the size of Iceland, but they weigh about 30 times the mass of the sun or so. At the spinning round, just, you know, at the end, just, you know, meters apart <laughs> um, for, for a fraction of a second, uh, spinning round each other, flying at a good fraction of the speed of light, and then they collide. And um, that collision gives off, just for a moment, just for a hundredth of a second or so, it gives off more energy that the rest of the universe is emitting in light just for that moment and that then spreads out across the universe but they're far away and uh, i know if you make a ripple in a pond the further you go away the smaller the ripple gets and these are not just a little bit away they're you know halfway across the universe away and so by the time the ripples reach us they're they're so small that you can't really describe them um you know if i say a millionth of a millionth of a millionth of a meter it doesn't mean anything if I say thousandth of the way across a proton, doesn't mean anything. No. Uh, you know, if I say it's the same ratio as, you know, a football to the distance to Alpha Centauri or whatever, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So, so the, the, it's just an almost unimaginably small um, ripple that arrives at Earth, shakes the components that you talked about, these mirrors that are hanging, uh, hanging in a vacuum system, isolated from any disturbance. Um, in Louisiana in, and, in, and, and in Hanford and also one in, um, in Italy as well. And uh, we, uh, we've seen, um, at the moment, you could actually, people with iPhones can get, their, can get an app to, that, give, that gives an indication every time we detect something. And it's kind of one a week at the moment, which is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess um, there was a lot of doubters in the past oh, yeah. that you would ever even find these things. Oh yeah. Well, there were first doubters that thought we could never beat the machines because um, we start when I started off uh, doing doing my PhD in, in, in Glasgow uh, some some decades ago. Um, there were a few orders of magnitude to go between the machines we could build and what we needed, and there were many people who thought that the, the, we would never meet all the, there'd be some thing that we wouldn't get over. There were so many barriers and one of them would be, would get us, you know, that it would be something to do with mechanical systems or optical systems or electronic parts. Something would stop us making the, the exquisite sensitivity that these machines had to have. But um, no, they actually worked as advertised or very, very close to, to advertised and, um, and have been upgraded since and, and are still working. Uh, pretty close within um, well within a factor of two of the of the planned performance of of the the, the, the LIGO uh, detectors that you mentioned in America, um, and they're, they're due to be worked on over the next year or two to 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 gain that that, that next factor of two, um, and then upgraded even a bit further uh, in in the in the following years. Because every time you make this machine, it's a good deal if you make it twice as sensitive. You can see. Twice as far out to space, okay, mm -hmm. it's fair enough. 
Uh, but if you go twice as far out into space, there's eight times the volume because it's a cube, actual cubic relationship. And so um, if you make a factor of two performance, you say eight times as much in terms of signals. Um, and so if we, we go another factor of two, what we want a week, we want a day. <laughs> then you're really, you're really seeing a lot, of, uh, a lot of things happening far across the universe. That's great. So there's, there's still plenty of funding coming in after the initial detection, because that was a bit of a question, wasn't it? It's a cha- it's a challenge. I mean, it's uh, the um, the the detectors we talked about are are well supported, and the upgrades are are supported. I think the big challenge, uh, which is not not really so much for me at my point in, in my career, but it's for the 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 uh, the new people coming up, um, is uh, we know more or less how to make detectors about 10 times better. Um, that, that really would, again, revolutionize the, the science that can be obtained um, looking way back towards the beginning of the universe or doing, uh, just like astronomers do, uh, galactic surveys now where you, you just catalog everything. And by doing that cataloging, you actually understand much more about how the universe evolved and, and, and what's, what's out there. And you could do a similar sort of thing with gravitational waves, but you have to be seeing thousands of events, not just not just tens. Um, and um, but those those experiments will be expensive because they need completely new infrastructures, and so you're talking uh, uh, ten-digit ten-digit numbers, uh, <laughs> which is which is a lot in in, in any currency. Yeah, sure. Um, are you talking about things like the Einstein telescope, the proposed yeah. massive um, interferometer, similar to the ones that detected gravitational waves so far, but just on a, a larger scale and yeah. uh, underground and um, so quieter and more sensitive? That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. Idea. It's amazing stuff. And talking about the levels of precision has always impressed me um, to you know, throw numbers like that around. Um, it boggles the mind and it inspires and uh, it inspires wonder. And it's, it's kind of interesting how physics is very different to nutritional science, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. in its standards. You know, I can remember when the Higgs boson was found at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. You had, um, you, you know, uh, the scientists then being extremely careful to not say they found it until they, they double-checked, triple-checked, quadruple-checked, yep. and they had a very high certainty, level of certainty. Um, similarly with the gravitational waves, you know, physicists just don't come out of the blocks unless they've got something. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's not really like that in all sciences, is it? No, and that, that, that's very sad. And I think... Um... There's actually a combination of effects because it's not just it's not just the um, it's not just the the it's not really particularly the fault of, of the scientists um, because some of the things that are some of the things you would want to do in nutrition are just frankly impossible to do and so I think even the best scientists or probably especially the best scientists know that they're doing the best they can but that it's not quite answering the question that you want. But then a lot of what happens, and this is particularly bad in epidemiology, is that there's some 
I don't know, more, more or less willful um, um, misinterpretation of the outcome. And so, so the scientific result, whatever it is in the, um, in the paper, I think we have to assume that most papers, um, the actual data are, are valid and there's not, you know, there's not scientific fraud going on at that level. But then as, as, um, as you could, if you read a lot of papers, you could find quite commonly that if you read the results section and you look at the graphs and the tables, you spot some things in it that are never mentioned in the paper. And they could be actually as significant as the result that is discussed. And you could argue, well, that wasn't the point of the study. But on the other hand, it would, you know, a physicist's approach would typically be to say, oh, here's something really interesting that's emerged, um, just out of scientific curiosity. And, and, you know, especially if it's more significant, the result that you're actually looking for. But then, okay, we, we, we have that. But it, it, the thing that, that really starts to get much more worrying for me when you read a conclusion to a paper and an abstract, and you think, no, no, they're not, they're not really consistent. You know, the abstract is written by someone who probably doesn't want to let the full impact of their paper be known because they're scared they won't get their funding continued because, you know, it says something like omega-6 uh, fatty acids are bad. And you know, there, there are classic examples of this. And I think um, the Sydney uh, Diet Heart Study, I might not get the title exactly right, is, is one of the classics in that, and also the Minnesota one, um, Minnesota coronary experiment, I think it is. They're, they're both classics in this. And um, um, they have been reanalyzed, and the analysis uh, uh, published uh, by Ramsden, I think is first author, uh, subsequently, and so the, the Sydney Diet Heart Study was an uh, a, a experiment where uh, a group was given safflower oil, which is pretty like sunflower oil in, in, in the amount of linoleic acid it contains, um, as part of a, um, a trial uh, compared to a normal control diet to see whether this actually improved their, their um, cardiac outcomes. And the way the results were published was... Uh, was fine, but except it didn't actually point out that the, uh, the study group had actually had a higher rate of death. Um, and this only emerged in the, in the, uh, the reanalysis, which was um, done, I think, 2010. It was published, if I remember correctly. Um, and rather than the, the early 70s. Um, and, you know, so there was that 40, nearly 40 year period where people had a chance uh, not to be killed by overconsumption of, of vegetable oil. And I know that that might sound sensationalist to some people, but I, I honestly believe that a billion people, minimum a billion people have been seriously harmed by, by this. You know, every, everyone, every diabetic has lost a limb or a foot, you know, foot um, or a finger or whatever. Uh, Most people who, who've, who've had the horrible experience of dementia, uh, and I, you know, I don't know how you, can, how you can even estimate how many people have been affected, but uh, some very bad signs where the results were, were actually at some level there uh, back, back in, say, the 1970s, um, before the huge expansion in the consumption of, uh, of vegetable oils in, in the 70s. 
I think that's one of the, I think people will look back and one of the biggest mistakes we've made as, as humanity. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that that realization is made. It's obviously terrible that it was made. And I think there were, there's, there's plenty of earnest scientists who looked at it at the time and thought, this, this isn't right. You know, we've come to this conclusion prematurely. Um, but there's something in all walks of life where once there's a, a juggernaut of received wisdom on, on track, then good luck stopping it. Yeah. It takes the whole <laughs> thing falling apart. Yeah. And, you know, I think there was a lot of very positive and well-meaning optimism as well. And I think that's maybe one of the things that, that um, allowed it to happen, that there were people who genuinely believed that, um, you know, just because something's wrong doesn't make it hard to believe. Um, doesn't, you know, I think people are, are, I think it's been proven, people are very bad at making judgments about scientific matters. Even scientists are, making, are very bad at, you know, we get things completely wrong, like physicists uh, before quantum mechanics, where the, the view of the world, you know, even even quite famous physicists said we've got it all sorted by now. I, we didn't know anything as physicists. Our physicists at the time didn't know anything. And it's probably the same now that we've got this model of the world that's only got a few little cracks and chinks in it. But, you know, it's probably more or less completely wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it does the job, but it's probably not right uh, it's probably not really logical and consistent and complete um who knows maybe it is but it seems <laughs> unlikely and that's in you know the reason i do physics is because physics is simple i mean really at the end of the day you you you've got systems that you're in control of and you've got experiments that you can make them do you know it's not trivial but it's possible to make them do what you want and you take living things there are orders and orders and orders of magnitude more complicated you know even something like uh um, standard lab mouse, you know. I, I, I remember this on Peter's blog that he's got a little post which points out that uh, the standard lab, like you know, standard lab mouse has a mitochondrial defect. So good luck doing any nutrition study on a <laughs> on a standard lab mouse because maybe your result isn't right. And so if you've ever seen a nutrition study based on mice. Um, Maybe you should question that result. Yeah, for sure. It's um, it's always interesting talking about uh, mitochondria. Um, one of one of the people that you switched me on to is Nick Lane, mm-hmm. and uh, he's got a couple of great books about that sort of thing: power, sex, and suicide, and a uh, the vital question. Yeah, the vital the question is my favorite. My favorite book. Your favorite book, number one. Yeah, favorite all fiction, non-fiction, whatever you want to call it. It's it's my favorite book. I think. It's yeah, it's favorite. remarkable. I mean, yeah. it all comes down to mitochondria in the end, and uh, you know the the reason that rats only live a few years and pigeons live for twenty or thirty years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's. Um, I mean, do you remember? Do you remember the explanation? Yeah, it's. Um, that, you, um, the only reason I say that is because you you probably put it better than I would. Oh right, no, well the way I would put it is, uh, and, and the thing is it also applies to bats, and that's the key, right? Bats live longer than than equal mice, or whatever waves the same as a bat. Yeah, and the, an- the answer is because they've got a fly that the basically the mitochondria have to be adapted to much higher continuous power output. 
Um, and basically that means that, um, to, keep it, to keep it simple, that the, the regulation of them, which involves these reactive oxygen species uh, that, we, that we talked about before, has to be set at a different sort of set point. So it's like the thermostat set, uh, set lower and the boiler doesn't wear out as quickly. <laughs> So that, that's, uh, that's how I would put it. <laughs> Rather, we, 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 you know, we, we, we uh, they have more, they have more. Um, um, the other way to put it is, there's, if you study the sort of resting metabolic output compared to peak, um, they, they need to have a, a, a different relationship between, between those, um, between those levels than we do. And it's the tinkering with the mitochondria that, uh, has led as, as I think a side effect to the fact that you know many birds basically don't age. Yeah. You know, you you, you have a, a friend of mine is visited by a by a seagull uh, that's been visiting for I think twenty years or something wow. like that, and it looks identical to it did twenty years ago. Wow. It, you know, they've got photographs, and there's nothing. There's no aging. You know, they don't they don't they don't sort of go great. Well, they're great to start with. So that wouldn't work. But you know, they don't they don't age. In, in the same way, um, they, they meet with an accident, and, and yeah. that's, that's that's the end of their life. But it's not it's not that the age, and you know, in, in a sense, aging is is therefore optional because you know we we, we could probably reprogram ourselves to um, um, to not age either by you know changing our mitochondria. But the almost inevitable side effect is we don't get cancer. Yes, <laughs> we wouldn't be able to do it right. Yes, there's a fascinating chat uh, I heard recently Joe Rogan's podcast with David Sinclair and he's a longevity researcher at Harvard who, um, who's got some really interesting thoughts on it. He thinks that maybe within our lifetimes people will start living you know, well beyond 100 routinely and starts talking about two to 300 uh, being... Um, something that you know you could imagine that he could imagine, but I thought I, I was listening to it and I thought this is great. And then he started talking about before actually before I talk about this, the other the other thing that I remember from Nick Lane's book, uh, the Vital Question about uh, rats and um, and pigeons, is that um, a sort of side effect or I suppose an evolutionary kind of. Uh, thing that happens is that when you're built like a rat you have lots of children and or babies and they can um adapt to the environment more readily because there's genetic vari variance there and so you'll have a lot of them a lot of them will die but enough of them will survive the stakes are a little higher with a, an animal like a pigeon where fewer animals fewer young will come to term um, and there'll be less, you know, over generations, they'll, they'll take longer to adapt to their surroundings, but they've got the energy advantage. True. It's a trade-off. Yeah. Well, it's always a trade-off. That's how evolution yeah. works, right? That's it. Um, yeah, so David Sinclair... And I was impressed with what he was saying. And then he started talking about mTOR and TMAO and saying that, uh, see, mTOR, there's a pathway in the body that um, if you activate it, then, well, I mean, it's, it's there for lots of reasons, but um, people talk about 
avoiding activating mTOR because it, it's been implicated in the growth of cancer cells. And TMOs, TMA is a different thing. It's a substance that is found in things that we can eat. And uh, it's been um, said to be potentially involved in the aging process. But it, so what, he was talking about it because he was saying mTOR is activated excessively when you eat lots of red meat and TMAO is found in red meat. And so one of the worst things you could do is have a big steak. Um, and I thought it's incredible. Someone who's clearly so intelligent just doesn't scratch the surface mm. to find out that that's, I'm sure if he was presented with a few particularly well-chosen papers, he would be like, oh yeah, no, I'm completely wrong about this. Yeah, He's based yeah. his whole diet around it. Yeah, because once you're in ketosis, the whole, the whole story changes. And so if you're actually eating a, you know, if you're actually eating uh, a sort of uh, caveman diet or something like that, if you're actually eating a paleolithic diet um, and doing, a, doing it reasonably well, um, you, you, you've biased the system so far in one direction that and it's not a problem. And you, you see that from, um, you know, all the, all this sort of work that's come out of, um, well, I suppose Thomas Seyfried is the, is the, uh, the, the current you know, main exponent of it in terms of uh, cancer as a metabolic um, disease. Um, and if you look at the regulation mechanisms there, um, they're certainly not going to conclude that, um, that uh, eating a low sugar diet is bad for you. They're certainly not going to push in that direction. Yeah, he's a really interesting uh, researcher. Him and Dominic D'Agostino uh, doing a lot of stuff. Uh, Dominic D'Agostino's work just got wide um, publicity. I'm not sure if you saw it. It was the report that the Navy SEALs were thinking about using a ketogenic diet to improve the uh, abilities of their soldiers and yes. their abilities to last underwater um, and... Uh, avoid uh, is it is it used to avoid the bends is that something that they it's a, it's a big side effect of it i'm not sure but um it certainly allows you to swim longer and further with less oxygen yeah um, that's what you'd expect um i i don't know enough about breathing systems to know whether that then translates to you know different amounts of oxygen and nitrogen and things to breathe so i don't know don't know about that but um um but no, I mean, I, one, I mentioned earlier that I, I uh, especially as I was, I, I, before I got ill, I liked to run. I didn't do very much, but I liked to run just to forests and things, just for, just for recreation. Um, and um, when I was recovering, that was one of the main exercises that I did. And I, I, would, I was running, though, for the first time on a ketogenic uh, diet. So, you know, very low carbohydrate. And so... Um, um, I got this new experience eventually when I was running far enough uh, to be running for two hours or two and a half hours. Um, I had this realization that um, whereas before, after running for let's say an hour, I was probably out of glycogen and things suddenly got very tough, uh, bunk, and <laughs> you know, time to stop. Um, it was exactly the opposite. Once I got to about an hour, I felt free and, and also very positive. Um, um, and you know, sometimes my legs would be really tired, my body would be going, run, 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 um, keep going. Um, 
which is which is quite which is quite weird. But then there was just one day when I was doing this, and I think I think I run into the forest. I saw this deer. Um, I got this urge to to chase it, <laughs> just, just for a moment. <laughs> I didn't I didn't chase it. It was there, but I just thought, oh right, if I if I was if I was hunting now, then it suddenly made sense that um, this is the kind of diet you'd want to be on because you wouldn't want to be hunting for an hour and then suddenly want to stop, even if you hadn't caught anything, because <laughs> you'd run out of glycogen. Uh, it'd be much more sensible to have a system, of, of, uh, uh, a way of, of working as a human that uh, after you'd run for an hour, if you hadn't caught up with what you were hunting, you could keep going for another hour and you would actually feel more positive about it, not less positive. Because that kind of makes sense if you're a hunter. Absolutely, yeah. Evolution would um, kill off the, the hunters who got more and more tired, and would reward the hunters who actually got better and better at hunting. The the more deprived they were. Yeah, and a lot of people report um, the effect of uh, uh, ketogenic diets on the brain as giving a very positive feeling about things. You know, so it counteracts depression, for example, and, and the, often and and things like that and I, I i think that was my main experience of that positiveness actually when um i, I sometimes i i realized um from from things that i looked at later but i was probably getting a bit dehydrated i was so i think when that happens your your uh, your, your ketone levels can actually be quite high um and it was before i think most people who who, who do this sort of thing find that eventually if you if you measure the amount of uh, of ketones you're producing by by one method or another, shall we say, um, <laughs> that um, early on you tend to overproduce and uh, dispose of excess, whereas as your body gets more used to it, you tend to be more efficient in that. And that was probably a stage where I was I had quite high, um, certainly quite high urine ketone levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the um, people stories that you pointed me towards early doors was Weston Price and I find that there's some, if you look them up now, you get the Weston Price Foundation and there's some, um, some, some members of that who tout ideas that I'm, I'm not interested in at all, but his story is remarkable and what he found was remarkable and the, the, the skill that he um, executed his plan with was amazing. Um, and you can't, you can't really deny that he, he, you know, went around the world um, cataloging traditional people, which might, you know, de roughly defined as people who weren't tapped into the modern Western food system and measured all sorts of um, things about them. Um, he was a dentist and a scientist. So he measured, you know, uh, blood levels of vitamins and he measured the level of, dental disease and stuff like that and he found that people who were living a traditional life and they were extremely varied in what they ate and did um but they they had basically no heart disease um not much sign of cancer there um really no dental disease uh, at all uh, i always like the, the typical statistics of one instance of caries per, you know, thousand teeth or a couple of instances of caries per thousand teeth and so many populations with that kind of, that kind of rate of, um, 
of, of decay, which is, you know, orders of magnitude different from the developed world. I mean, I think, I think basically it's, 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 it's utterly dreadful that, um, that we've, we've, we've put together a world where dentists need to exist except to uh, repair people who injure their, you know, have an accident or something and injure their teeth. Yes. Yeah, because the, I mean, I, I've got uh, crowded, uh, crowded teeth and have had orthodontics at various points in my life. And, you know, I'm, I'm now completely aware of the sort of uh, uh, the reason for that in terms of uh, nutrition and, and epigenetic effects. Yeah, and I think... We're not exactly making it better. No, and the epigenetic side is another thing that you recommended I look into. And I started reading, well, I read Nessa Carey's book, uh, The Epigenetic Revolution, is that what it's called? Yeah, that's it, that's it. Yeah. And it's a really good book. Um, and it describes epigenetics uh, at the start um, in the context of Romeo and Juliet. So you've got the... Uh, the Richard Burton, I think, um, Romeo and Juliet from the 50s, and when it's all talking like that. And then you've got the Baz Luhrmann version with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's the same script, but mm-hmm. you have a very different effect. And so what she's saying is that your genes, the, the genes that you're born with, are the script. But the, um, the epigenetics are the way that that script is expressed in the environment it's in. Yes. Yeah. And I, I always use the, the example of your uh, cornea and the front of your eye and your liver. Genetically identical, but somehow not quite the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, 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 you take stem cells and depending on what environment the stem cell's in, you create a different type of thing. Yeah. And there's all sorts of other effects, isn't there? So that even if you're fully formed, and you're, you know, you're fully formed child and you're in a particular kind of situation. It's an extreme environmental situation, but your twin isn't in that situation. Then you could end up being cleverer or taller or more frail or all sorts of things, couldn't you? Yes. And the other, the other point is that some fraction of these effects, not by any means all, but some effects get passed down from generation to generation. Um, and there are, there are great examples of that in the, in the epigenetics revolution. Yeah, that's like, it's, it's being kind of hotly debated at the moment, but the, the one that sticks out for me is the, the, one, the, the experiment that shows that they took some rats and they, well, they took a rat and they um, released the smell of cherry blossom into its cage. And when they released the smell of cherry blossom into its cage, they gave it an electric shock. And then they had um, a way of measuring stress levels in the rat at the time. I can't remember exactly how they did it. Um, and then they uh, let that rat breed. And so their ch- that, those rat babies lived their life normally kind of unmolested with cherry blossoms or uh, electric shock treatment. And then their rat babies were um, measured for stress when cherry blossom smell was released into their cage and they were stressed out compared to when any other smell was released. It's, it's, that's amazing. Yeah, I haven't heard of that particular example, but you know, 
I think I think uh, around the time that I first read that book, I don't remember when it was. I looked at because um, I like reading scientific papers uh, as well as I mean I, I love reading the book, but I think then I, my curiosity's uh, raised, and I want to I want to find some original works, and I, I think I found this journal called Epigenetics. Um, and there's more than one journal called Epigenetics, but it's the one that started around 2000. And I think in the first year, there were two or three papers published. In the second year, there were maybe eight. In the third year, there were maybe 20. And so I actually started at the beginning and read all the papers in this journal <laughs> until for the first, I think, six or seven years. And then it got too many to actually <laughs> read. So it was, it was amazing to see the, the huge growth in, in, this new, in this new field as people had really not not paid any attention to kind of something that in a sense is, is just as important as genetics. So it works on a different time scale, but in a sense, you know, it's, it's, it's equally important. Unless you're a single-celled animal. For single-celled animals, epigenetics probably isn't very important, but mm -hmm. for, ev for everyone else, um, um, including, I would think, most human scientists, the epigenetics should be, should be quite important. Yeah. I mean, I remember you, you talking about it like, um, so you've got your genes which have survived because they were appropriate to your environment, your, your ancestors' environment, but you find yourself in an environment that's not necessarily the same as your ancestors' environment. So what's evolved is um, your genes, which are essentially digital, and your epigenetic expression of those genes, which is like an analog smooth smoother which allows you to respond to your environment um, in a way that, you know, you've still got the same genes, you can't change them, uh, but that you can uh, allow their expression to fit the environment properly. That's right. I think maybe one of the, the sort of unusual takes that I had on reading about epigenetics is that, um, you know, genetics is very digital in the sense of it's a code which precisely codes for certain proteins. And in fact, it's like the best digital computer data handling systems because the rate of errors is, you know, is better than your bank's rate of errors. Wow. You know, it's a very, very, very low error rate. I, I, a, lot, a, a young child is reproducing, uh, copying DNA at a rate of something like um, a thousand million million bases per second. And they're almost all correct. <laughs> you know, the, the rate of errors is very low. Um, and that's fine, but life isn't digital. Life is smooth and analog. And so the question is what's going on? And it turns out that when you look at these, when you look at the chemistry and the physical processes of the epigenetic mechanisms, the actual things that determine basically whether a gene is expressed into a protein and does something in the cell, um, in very crude summary, um, it turns out that it's all a game of chance. That if you've got the same gene in two neighbouring cells, one is expressed a little more than the other, because it's just how these little these little uh, uh, proteins that are travelling around inside the cell happen to encounter the genes, and how tightly that particular gene's wound up on its histone body, and how accessible it is for copying. And every cell in your body, even nominally identical ones, it all runs at slightly different speed. And that is, is exactly how, how it should be. You know, that, that then makes sense uh, from anyone who's, who's thought about um, um, the, the interfacing of digital and analog uh, continuous and discrete systems, that 
the um, there should be uh, a, a mechanism to smooth over the roughness of, of, of the digital world and express it uh, in a smooth way in the in the analog world. Um, and um, you probably uh, appreciate this most most more than most people listening. But it reminded me so much of one of the big problems of gravitational wave detectors with the thermal noise and the coatings and all the atoms and molecules jiggling around in the front of our mirrors. Um, and of course, it's exactly that same thermal jiggling that um, smooths out all the digital effects in, in genetics. Because hmm. all the, the, the protein molecules are jiggling around in the fluid inside the cells and whether they bump into a gene just at the right moment to... To, to express it or whether, you know, whether they miss, it's all down to the, the thermal jiggling, the Brownian motion that's going on inside the cell. Yeah, it's a really nice thought. It's um, sometimes a natural process is uh, beautiful and desirable and another time if you're trying to get rid of it from your mirror, it's a pain in the arse. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. It, talking about physicists again, what kind of general interest level is there in your uh, health story and um, your nutrition, what you eat? And, you know, is it just a passing interest or has, have any of your colleagues adopted that kind of change of eating? Um, I, I, I try not to, um, you know, to push people at all. Um, I, I know pe several people have have asked me about things and have, you know, answered answered the questions. But I don't, I don't, um, I don't see it as a. Um, the, the problem is, it's so easy to get into the the situation where you, you're acting at some level, like like a doctor or something like that, and that's just wrong. It's just not the right thing to do because. You know, it, 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 there's a world of difference between um, saying what's generally a good thing to do and then, you know, finding out that someone's got some very strange uh, particular metabolic quirk that makes it a disaster to do the yeah. same thing. And, you know, that would be a dreadful, dreadful mistake uh, to make. I was invited to give a talk um, to a, to a group of a couple of hundred uh, physicists, uh, mainly physicists on, 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 on nutrition. Um, and I deliberately did it quite high level. Um, and um, I think uh, there were a few people afterwards said, oh, how do I relate that to what I do uh, in, in um, in my life, apart from obviously avoiding vegetable oil, and I felt well, I've done my job. If people if people have taken that single message, then that's probably the best the best single thing that 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 you can you can uh, transmit to people. Um, but I, it's the the problem is, and I think it goes back to this um, point I made earlier. It's easy to believe what's wrong. And I, you know, having been thinking about this now for about nine years, um, I certainly wouldn't have been very confident in saying most of it for most of that time because, you know, there's always the niggling worry that because you don't understand the great depth of this extremely complicated subject that you're, you know, taking a, a shortcut that just isn't valid somehow. Um, but the experience has been that 
and of course this could be this could be bias and it could be short sightedness, but but I don't think it is. Um, that that um, you find quite a lot of layers upon layer of, of sort of underpinning biochemistry, which really does support. And even uh, you come across papers that were published, but somehow you missed them a few years ago that actually contain deductions that you've later made. And that, you know, that gives some, with, it, with experimental evidence, and that gives some um, feeling, oh, I can't remember which particular paper. There was one paper where I didn't come across it till well after um, maybe 2016 when, and it was probably published in about 2012. And I, unfortunately, I don't remember the title or author, but it was essentially on this, this topic of, of, of Omega-6. And it was a fantastic review and it's got everything in it. And I think Tucker Goodrich links to it on, on, on the Yellowstock blog, uh, but also sometime after it was, after it was published. And, you know, it's, it's like you can actually find from respectable scientists in the field rather complete descriptions of the problem. They do, it's just not applied in, in public health yet. I mean, it's beginning to be, but it's just not directly applied in, in public health. And there's this, there's this gulf between the, um, the science. And as you said, we've, we've, we've entered this illusion of, of um, you know, certain foods being good that are actually bad for you and certain foods being bad that are actually good for you. And the problem is to a good approximation, everybody knows the wrong story. And so people, whether the scientists or someone you meet in the supermarket, they're, they're um, genuinely shocked when you question the, the, the perceived wisdom, the status quo. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and it, it's not really surprising. I mean, you can't, people can't do everything. And someone who um, studies biochemistry to PhD level and beyond might, never have come across nutrition, why would they? We wouldn't have been in an undergraduate course, and why would they then pick it up? Um, and so a lot of the uh, abstracts and conclusions of papers where some little technical biochemistry detail is investigated are written in the context of an application to nutrition that's just pure fiction. Um, but it's completely consistent with the, the standard model of of, of nutrition um, um, and so you get these papers where they've done very clever experiments and they've got really nice results um, and then there's complete nonsense about how it should be applied in the in the wider world because it's 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 completely out of context and they're not uncommon um, actually and I mean that's the kind of understandable reaction you get from high-level scientists who just haven't ever looked into it and have a particular narrative in their head about what is good and what is bad in terms of nutrition. But you, you find sometimes that nutrition scientists themselves um, can't see the wood for the trees. There's a lot of clever people who, um, who are... are understandably wary to make broad sweeping conclusions, but maybe not willing enough to put their neck on the line about making bold statements about what the evidence shows. 
That, that, that may be true. I mean, I, I, I tend not to, when I come across an author that writes some things that, you know, either because of my understanding or because they're just wrong, I, I can't understand them. I tend not to fall, I tend just to drop that and, you know, look for, look for other sources for equivalent or better information. And so I, I, don't, I don't really focus, um, you know, I don't store those files in my, in my library of papers. <laughs> um, and so I'm not really very familiar with them. Um, so I tend, to, I tend to go looking for, uh, now you could say this is, this is clearly biased, but it's not that I tend to go looking for sort of reinforcement, but I tend to go looking for um, publications in which there's a general consensus among a, a group of readers um, that I respect um, and who are you know, better qualified than I am to, to judge the, um, the quality of the work and then focus on the work of, uh, you quite often find there are groups um, of, of uh, you know, where there's a person who, who works, who works or has worked in a few different institutes who, who um, uh, all the work they do is, is very sensible, very high quality. And I tend to try and learn from that rather than worrying so much about the things that just don't seem to make sense or seem contradictory because, you know, I mean, it, it, I, I can't touch the motives or, yeah reasoning for, for people for people doing that. I mean I think it's fair to say the worst distortions are under press releases. And you know, I don't I don't think the authors are hundred percent responsible uh, yeah. for, for, for that. But um, um, they're not a hundred percent they don't they are, they're also not zero percent responsible but um, but I think um, there are there are contradictions, but there are so many places now where you can study, really seriously study online or, or in books, uh, both sides of the argument. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe one of the best examples of that's actually uh, a, a remarkably accessible level for anyone who's got uh, 20 or 30 hours to spare uh, watching YouTube videos, but um, uh, the, the Tim Noakes uh, trial uh, or hearing. Um, in, in, in South Africa, because uh, there you really hear both sides of the argument, the conventional, the conventional wisdom, so-called, on one side, and the um, uh, scientific, uh, well-thought-out logical argument on the other side. Um, and um, at times, like, it's quite sad, not because of the, you know, the, the horrible... Uh, Process that that Tim Noakes had to go through for for you know for uh, no direct benefit to himself, but but uh, hopefully the benefit of of uh, many other people um, um, who can who can uh, eventually get more nutritious uh, food um, as a result. But it, it really there you really see you know professional teams putting forth both sides of the argument. On, on a basis where it's a judgment, you know, where it's being done, you know, at least sort of legally. Um, and, um... Yeah, I should say for people who, who haven't, or maybe who haven't listened to the Tim Noakes episode or who don't know that he's a retired nutrition professor from South Africa who um, is 
very widely published and published lots of books around uh, nutrition and exercise science and um, some amazing research from him, like yeah, um, hypernutremia, hypernutremia uh, you know, diagnosed cases of um, people drinking too much during marathons and getting sick or dying, uh, which is something he predicted happening. Um, and now people know that they shouldn't, you know, drink um anticipating the thirst they should just drink when they get thirsty and he's done a lot of amazing work and he changed his mind about running ultra marathons where at fir- first he thought that you should carb load and in his original book lore of running he wrote that and then he changed his um mind because uh he became aware of the available evidence that actually that's a bad idea uh, for your body long term and now he eats a uh, almost carnivorous diet and uh, feels very healthy and thinks that's the, the, the appropriate human diet for most people. Um, and he, he was um, taken to a hearing by his professional body in South Africa for a complaint that was made against a tweet that he made. Um, and he used the opportunity to put the low-carb diet on trial and the low carb diet won. Yeah. So he won the hearing and he won the appeal. So it was a great, it's a great story, and I agree. It's a, it's a brilliant place to to start if you want to see a quite a rousing story about um, you know the science as well. And um, it's funny though, like you've obviously dedicated a lot of time to this at first because it was your career on the line. My, uh, sorry, your health and your career. I mean, for me, it was it was um, definitely getting a little bit desperate with my health, you know, which had been sort of patchy since I was a child. Uh, it was, you know, it was really, you know, there was, there was some, some nasty autoimmune things going on and, you know, physical and mental health stuff that wasn't good. Trouble focusing, um, all that. And uh, I was so astounded by the, the turnaround. I ended up more or less doing something like a nutrition PhD rather than a, a physics PhD, if I'm honest, and segued away uh, from, from physics. Um, but almost nobody is going to spend that much time researching it. I think most of the time people just want to understand which guru to listen to and just stick with them. And it's, it's a, it can be a big problem because number one, a lot of people don't want to be gurus. Like you said, there's a, there's a huge burden associated with that. I mean, what if something goes wrong and you're with a guru in charge? Um, but, uh, what, you know, not everyone can have all the answers either. So you you know, any guru is likely to make mistakes. Like you said about the, the state of, uh, the knowledge body of knowledge of physical science, you know, Every every uh, hundred years of the paradigm shift, we realised that we knew nothing, and uh, and we're still in the dark ages, probably. Um, and you know the same is true on an individual level. And um, and then some people who are who are really kind of foolhardy want to be gurus, and they're they're talking rubbish. Um, but it works because so many people aren't going to do the the legwork and. Yeah, you know, they just want to get a message that's clear. And it, I mean, 
I tend to recommend people like Mark Sisson and Tim Noakes and uh, Ray Pete is good. Um, people who've 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 got years of of uh, accessible information about that sort of thing. Um, but I mean, it's it's a double edged sword because I would rather people did do the the legwork. Yeah, the, the the problem is that it's it's not easy to find, you know, to find a way into it. And if, especially if you're not used to reading um, scientific literature, and they, there are fantastic, uh, you know, people who who uh, um, that who, who interpret a lot of scientific papers from a particular point of view. I mean, people like Zoe Harcombe or, or whatever, who, you know, will, will, will digest this week's uh, nutrition paper and spit it out very quickly, telling you uh, many of the things that are, that are wrong with it. That, that you know, that, that, saves, that certainly saves me an awful lot of work because I just, I just wait two or three days and don't read the paper because I knew it was nonsense from the title, but I probably couldn't have told you why. Um, until you know, without doing a bit of work, and there's someone to do that, but it still doesn't really make it accessible. And I'm not sure that um, the old traditional way of doing it was books. And I, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, there's the two editions of of Tim Noak and and uh, Marika Zora's book, um, um, which uh, cover the which cover the trial, and no, no doubt you. Uh, Referred to on the other on the other podcast, but um, and that that's that's good, and it's got a very at least the Law of Nutrition uh, book, which which I've got. Um, I, I managed to get a copy in the UK uh, from from somewhere far away. Um, um, the um, there's a few chapters at the end which are kind of more advice like, more diet advice like, and it's quite good, but. It's very difficult to write something like that 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 will be just at the right level to appeal to an you know any individual um, to relate to their experience in some way and to um, um, find out where their concerns are and and where to go next and I'm I'm not sure that there is at the moment in that form uh, a good uh, a good way for people to to get the information. They need, um, and of course, there's any number of blogs and podcasts and 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 the like. Um, but there, how do people know without spending a lot of effort? Which ones are the are the valuable ones, and which ones are the ones that are are full of nonsense? Because there's no, or at least the peer review process is 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 at best indirect. Um, Certainly, the number of likes and dislikes doesn't really tell you the quality of, of a piece of, uh, of modern journalism. Uh, often, um, maybe tells you the level of controversy, but that's about it. Um, so it's it's it is very difficult um, to uh, to give a recommendation for how people should um, um, should should follow should follow this. There are, I mean, I think the point is that. What is this, the Center for Disease Control in the US say that of adults, 12% are currently metabolically healthy, 88% unhealthy. I think that's the number. Um, and 
uh, I, I suspect it's not far off that in the UK. I don't know the numbers for the UK. Um, but it means to a good approximation that anyone who's you know, got to the midlife has probably got something wrong, but a few very lucky people. Um, and um, something wrong or something starting to go wrong. Um, and of course, if it is mitochondrial disease, one of the things about mitochondria is your mitochondria are different in different tissues. And so for some people, uh, it will be the brain that goes first. For other people, it will be lungs or, 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 or heart or, or, or vasculature or something like that. And so even exposing uh, everyone to the same modern diet, you won't get the same end result. And you won't get the, you know, it's not that everyone gets cancer when they're 20. It's not that everyone uh, gets dementia when they're 50. It's, 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 there's a huge amount of, of variation. And it's not just genetic variation. It's also partly uh, mitochondrial um, uh, variation. I think there's something like a hundred distinct mitochondria in the uh, in the egg cell, and they some of them are really good and some of them are less good, and they end up in different tissues in your body in the end, wow. more or less. That's a very crude uh, summary of the of of, of the problem. Uh, but um, um, the the point is that. Everyone's going to have their own experience of of a descent into into poor health, and um, I I, th I think I mean it'd be great if public health authorities woke up to this and actually made some serious attempts. And there are you know there are some great indications of um, um, you know diabetes associations and the like now accepting low-carbohydrate diet as, as one possible route, maybe among many. Um, but, you know, that's infinitely better than it was just a few years ago when the, 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 the existence of anything apart from drug treatments and the insistence that, say, type 2 diabetes is anything other than a, a reversible slope down to oblivion is, is, has gone. So that's fantastic. Um, but I think I have, a, I have a strong feeling that that's the only, um, that's the only way Really, to to progress on on a on a global scale, so that it then becomes fashionable to tell people to do that. And I I see this uh, enormous crash um, coming um, because at the same time as there's the uh, health based incentive in that direction, there's the um, uh, enormous pressure. Um, for example, the Eat Lancet um, thing. Mm, that's the diet where the suggestion was that we should eat, uh, you know, three cubic centimeters of red meat a week, and um, that it's, you know, that we should just be really eating plants more or less. And it's the reason being that it's 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 um, somehow better for the planet, um, you know, the environment. Yeah, that's a very strange thing because first it was published and. Certainly the press releases gave that story, but then when they, one of the lead authors was questioned on it, they said, well, no, we hadn't actually, we weren't really in a position to, to evaluate the environmental impact anyway, so it's really just the health aspect, which is, of course, none um, in the, at the end of the day because it's, it's all wrong, uh, almost entirely wrong. It's not all wrong. Um, but there's huge mounting political pressure um, to um, 
whether tokenism or in any real way to, well, probably tokenism because the, the whole of agriculture together is, you know, tiny uh, contribution to greenhouse gases compared to say the steel industry or something like that. So it's, yeah. it, it doesn't matter what, what you do in that respect. But, um, but and the pressure is really there and there's, there's uh, um, you know, going to be a very complicated time when on one side people start realizing that, that actually, um, and rather than this continuously shrinking um, red meat production in the world, which there has been uh, certainly in the developed world over the, over the past decades, I and mean, you compare the number of cows in Europe and the US now compared to the number of you know, bison there had been in the past, it's, it's, it's very little. And I mean, I, I, 20, 10%, 20% or something in that order, and, and a shrinking number. Uh, and if, if it suddenly, um, you know, as there have been hints, for example, demand for butter increasing because of the, the, uh, the bad stories about uh, margarines and so on, even a few years ago, and the butter is, a, again, as a healthy food and eggs as a healthy food. So demand goes up and supply becomes, becomes tight in, in some areas, in some countries. And... Um, on the other hand, you've got pressure to actually go in the opposite direction for, for a different set of political reasons. And I see that as being a, a very difficult um, situation, maybe quite soon, maybe in a few years, and maybe, maybe really very soon in some, some countries. Because you have two different groups of basically well-meaning people yeah. with exactly opposing solutions. Yeah, um, it's, it's been really interesting to see that kind of discussion develop and it's been particularly interesting because I think with on the internet you get a lot of polarization but then you get quite clear dissenting voices from the wrong side if you like so um, I think in the past you might have associated lots of meat eating um, and with uh, the right wing and you might have associated veganism with the left wing and it might still be broadly the case but I think what you've got now is um, a different sort of divide it's the it's 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 people interpreting the science in different ways and it, it doesn't really matter so much on your political leanings I think um, you know you've got you've got these uh, you've got these papers that say that there's a uh, hundred times the greenhouse gas emission from uh, making um, beef than from making uh, soy. But then you've got other papers published in equally uh, prestigious journals that say that, no, if you take the amino acid content into account, then it's actually it's about the same. It's maybe a factor of two different one way or another. Pea protein's worse than beef. Soy is a bit better than beef. But, you know, and then you've got to think about the, the nutrients being stripped from the soil. There's probably only a few harvests left before you have to start synthetically putting nutrients into the soil. Which we don't know how to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in principle, I've heard someone say, a very clever person say, you know, in the end, meat is just the result of inputs and outputs. And so if you can get them right in the lab, then you can get meat. But what I would say is that evolution's taken the time and effort to do that for us. If you think you're going to best that in a few years, then you're mental. 
And if you've got something that approximates uh, the process of making beef so closely that you've got beef, then you've actually got a cow. And yeah. then you've got the same so-called problems that you think you've got just now. Yeah. No, I think one of the big mistakes that a lot of people make, and it's, it's, I think it's based on appreciation of how, a lack of appreciation of how long a couple of billion years is, um, and the number of experiments that evolution has done, the number of tweaks that have been made over that, the number of genetic mutations and epigenetic steering that's occurred over, well, not, not epigenetics all the way back, but, but um, the number of attempts that have been made to improve the system is so mind-bogglingly large that it is really quite unlikely that, um, that we could produce an environment. I mean, it's no, it's no good producing meat if that meat has to be made in a factory, because then you need all the materials to make the factory. And, you know, you've, you've, that land is now, you know, just a meat-producing factory. Where do the raw materials come from? Are they plants or, 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 is, it, or is it another chemical factory? Where, where, where do you stop? And at the end of the day, um, I think when you do the accounting, you'll find that the, the good old cow was actually quite efficient in terms of being able to use land that probably not many other uses most of the time. Um, yeah. Eat things that probably wouldn't be eaten by, by humans without an awful lot of processing. Um, yeah, that's so, so true. Maybe, right maybe even if you get the farming right, maybe even builds up the soil rather than causes it to decay. I, I, think, I think soil is probably the resource that's going to kind of finish us as humans, if anything does. Yeah, I remember you saying something about um, past civilizations seem to farm themselves into collapse or something like that. Yeah, and you can't always blame it on, um, you know, there have been civilizations that have run out of lime and civilizations that have run out of uh, been able to grow in their, the, using the type of agriculture that they have available without inventing something new or without the, the resources. And of course, it, as soon as you overuse the resource, it collapses, mm-hmm. and then you're in real trouble. Um, you really, the only thing you can do is is invade someone else, or, or, or you know, because you're not going to invent in that level of stress, you're not going to invent a solution probably. Uh, and I, I think um, that the sort of um, the, the use of nitrogen fertilizers has uh, artificial nitrogen fertilizers has extended the life of soil, but I think it's pretty clear uh, from 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 many points of view that that um, that's that's a stay of execution. It's not you know it's not a long term solution because in the end uh, the the volume of soil the, of the depth decreases the organic content of it decreases and so you end up with a very sterile type of environment which is then extremely fragile against invasion or or takeover by some unfriendly species or um, or just collapse, mm-hmm. um, and I, I just don't, I just can't believe that the, uh, the crude application of nitrogen-based fertilizers year after year is in any way a decent approximation to what you get if you've got animals living on the on the uh, on the soil and building it up, um, and um, you know if you suddenly lose vast areas of um, of healthy soil, then that's not going to not going to help produce food for seven billion people or whatever. 
Indeed. Yeah, the um the I can't remember the name of the guy. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for modifying wheat in a way that allowed more people to eat per acre. Um saved saved, you know, tens of millions from starvation yeah. and ultimately has gone on to feed, you know, billions, I would have thought. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, that's quite a feat of genetic engineering but on the other hand you just end up with more people who then need more food yeah that's the way that's the way it works and uh, we were talking to Tucker Goodrich about this and he kind of took the the Malthusian view that you know we're just going to keep multiplying because that's our biological imperative that's what we are programmed to do um there's some evidence that the population levels off um when people are educated and i think that's because you know you've got the the power to earn and uh, you realize that if you do that then you can have quite a nice life filled with leisure and fun activities and engaging career goals and stuff like that um but an aging population is an interesting problem as well and so you know how do you balance that out? It's not an easy, there's no easy answer one way, whichever way you look at it, I think. Yeah. And of course, the sad thing about an aging population is it's not an aging healthy population, it's an aging unhealthy population. And that's, that's you know, if you look at the, uh, um, you know, I think it was 2010 that, uh, maybe of the year wrong, but uh, in the UK that, that uh, dementia was allowed to be recorded as a cause of death. And I think uh, it took over as the number one cause uh, for women, I think, a year or two ago. Um, yeah, dreadful. I mean, my gran had no. Alzheimer's. My dad currently has vascular dementia, which is, I think, a worse fate than Alzheimer's because you're talking about small strokes that have effectively killed parts of the brain. There's no, there's no uh, going on a low-carb diet and hoping that ketones will revive it slightly. You've... No. You've lost that function, um, whereas there's really hopeful stories now of people with Alzheimer's um, changing the way they eat and getting more active, jacking up the number of ketones in their blood and seeing a, a clinical benefit. And it's early days, and I think uh, sometimes it doesn't seem to have much of a benefit, but these uh, case studies are really interesting that are starting to appear. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, we've covered so much. I think we could Yeah, probably... I thought we were going to talk about food, though. We didn't. You didn't. Uh, <laughs> I was expecting to be talking about food. I was thinking, oh, my goodness, what do I, what do I know about food? So. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, why, why don't we... What, I mean, something I didn't ask you, which would be interesting to know, is how's what you eat changed between when you were a child through to when you were ill through to what you eat now? Yeah, well, so... I, I was thinking about this and it's funny, but my, my one set of grandparents used to live down in Southwest Scotland in a rather rural area, tiny village with farms all around. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but I think an awful lot of the food that I ate when I was there was locally, very locally produced, uh, except that the eggs were. Um, and I still remember how wonderful those eggs were. Um, I was, I, it was Roughly from the my age, maybe 10, 5 to uh, 15, that sort of decade. 
And I remember fantastic eggs, and I remember um, very meaty stews and uh, mutton stews and, and 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 soups and broths and things like that. That were that were that were great. And and um, I also um, <laughs> remember uh, really being very keen to get uh, if there was a if there was any chance of getting bone marrow or nervous tissue from. <laughs> <laughs> food house. <laughs> rather keen to get that out and, 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 and eat. Um, but I mean, at, at home growing up, it was very much needed to veg. Um, so probably could have been an awful lot worse. Um, yeah. um, you know, pasta would, would have been a, an innovation not yet arrived in our corner of, of the world. And, and um, so some potatoes, um, uh, very little rice. I didn't somehow take to rice very much, um, and and so, uh, and not not huge amounts of bread. So that's probably you know could have been an awful lot worse than that. Uh, unfortunately, probably a bit a bit of vegetable oil creeping in uh, in baking and and um, as a butter substitute. Um, maybe not enormous amounts. Uh, but then when I started to be a bit more independent, that sort of coincided with the availability of. Uh, you know, world world foods um, in Scotland. You know, joining the joining the world at a rather late date in the in the nineties, probably. Um, and of course, there was the good old Glasgow curry, which is a feature. And I know, given how much I enjoyed uh, going out eating a curry, I, I'm now rather scared to think how many of them are made with vegetable oil and vegetable ghee rather than proper ghee. Uh, and um, I now have an almost, uh, uh, and I find it almost impossible now to 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 go into a restaurant because uh, you know they, I would have to have a conversation with them about how they cook the meal before I would consider eating it. Um, and I, I think, unfortunately, I did I started sort of cooking more independently for you know self and so on. Um, that um, pasta did feature far too much and. Um, um, I found it, it had this amazing property that there was no limit on how much you could eat. If I put too much in the pot and cooked, you know, and sometimes I misjudged, I wouldn't weigh it out, just judged by volume, and it was twice as much as I actually wanted, then it would be perfectly possible to eat twice as much as I actually wanted. And it wouldn't make me less hungry two hours later or three hours later, and, and so on. So, just exactly what's now completely understood. Um, that that very finely processed um, wheat flour um, triggers a huge insulin response, but as soon as it gets into your gut, it triggers an enormous insulin response. So your blood sugar, you know, your blood sugar rockets because it's rapidly processed and you absorb it, and then your blood sugar plummets. And a little while later, you uh, you feel hungry again. And if you keep doing that for long enough, you wreck your pancreas and you wreck your, your insulin response and you become type 2 diabetic. And uh, luckily I, I, I didn't, um, didn't have that problem, although I did have, you know, insulin resistance, uh, you know, problems. Um, and now I, I, can't, I can't, I just cannot eat large amounts, I couldn't eat large amounts of, of carbohydrate. I would feel just terrible with even, you know, I think, I think um, I'm, I've not quite transitioned to be carnivore, a hundred percent carnivore, but it, I think functionally it's probably I'm probably carnivore. I mean, 
um, this, this, the staple food has become steaks, um, and that you know that's a sign of a step in the carnivore direction. And uh, but I, I, today I had some ox heart cooked with a very very small amount of onion, for example, mm-hmm. uh, probably about one percent of calories were were not meat. Um, so it's not quite pure carnivore, but uh, I still quite like cooking with some, you know, some additional flavors and so on. Um, and I can get away with it. So, um, so, so that's, that's okay. Um, but, um, I've got this little vegetable patch in my garden where it's just, it's just a raised bed and it's, you know, I plant a tiny number of vegetables and I don't eat most of them because I eat so little vegetables. <laughs> Right, I probably the amount a mouse would eat or something, <laughs> <laughs> something of that order. But it's quite nice to have a slightly different flavour sometimes. Yeah. Although I think if suddenly vegetables weren't available, um, they wouldn't. It would be of zero consequence now. Whereas it would have been a huge thing ten years ago. You know, I would have wondered if you were always going to eat. Um, so it's strange, and there is something that. I don't know how many people have noticed this, but I've, I've certainly read about it uh, in many people's stories. And that's that when you start cutting out things, or maybe if you don't cut out the things you need to cut out, the sensitivity to them seems to increase. Yeah. And I've noticed that in a lot of people's stories that in the end, you know, I, I'm eating uh, food and have a mild reaction and I would cut out things. And after a few months later, I'm eating food and still hadn't cut out the right thing and had a much, much stronger reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I don't, I really don't understand that, you know, why that goes on. It's as if the, the body loses the adaptation to tolerate, you know, amount of, I, don't, I don't really understand that. I would like to, you know, come across some information where someone had, had thought about that and had some, you know, put some science to it because I think that must affect a lot of people, um, where you have to go through this period where things actually seem to get worse before, before they get better. Um, I think that's one of the things that if, if we had an answer to it, it would, it would put a lot of people's minds at ease. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, one of the things you hear a lot about changing diet is that, you know, you mustn't, uh, recommend a change in diet because people find it so hard to stick to, but of course, if that's your attitude, then of course they find it difficult to stick to it. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think sometimes there's, um, like in all areas, there's a, people don't want to just say, we don't know. I'm sorry, we don't know. I know I'm meant to be an authority figure, but I don't know. We don't know. Nobody knows. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think when you mentioned there, people changing diet. And I think it was, it was, quite interesting when I reflected on my reaction to, to making the, the big dietary change because essentially it cut out sugar and vegetable oil um, and the first and then, then all carbohydrates basically uh, slightly thereafter. And I remember seeing a billboard advertisement for, for orange juice and actually feeling nauseous because of the thought of the sweetness of the orange juice. Hmm. So, so sugar wasn't wasn't a problem for me in that respect, and actually, I found that, that the, the idea of sweet things becomes quite um, um, repulsive. I remember I bought some blueberries. I won't mention the name of the 
very famous shop, supermarket that I bought them from. But um, there was a, it, it was a different type of blueberries and they were disgustingly sweet, you know? And berries are meant to be like 10% sugar or something mm. like that. And, and that was about my limit. And then I got these ones, I couldn't eat them because they were so sweet. And that was actually quite quickly after the transition to, mm -hmm. to, to, to towards low carb. Um, and the other, the other thing which I think might be quite telling is that um, I started having dreams about particular, very narrow type class of food. And so I think that's probably what I was really most addicted to. Hmm. And that was, that was baked, baked things. Wow. And I would have these dreams, which I don't recall ever having before, but these dreams of... of, of cake of, dreams. Uh, cake dreams. <laughs> Haunted by cake. Exactly. And, and I, I suspect that, um, you know, I think people, I mean, putting myself, get, get very, uh, have, have quite strong addictions to, um, to um, certain types of food. And it really affects the brain. And yeah. I think that is a big explanation for why people find dieting one of the toughest things they've ever tried to do in their life. Because, you know, you just can't, you know, you can't fight your brain. Yeah. You know, if you want to stay, stay sane, you can't fight your brain, so you have to give in. And um, I'm actually reading an absolutely fascinating book at the moment. It's, a, it's probably one of the densest books I've ever um, tried to read because it's, it's, it's from a slightly different world of science than, than the one I inhabit. And so the language is quite, uh, quite tough. It's basically from a mixture of... Um, how it ranges from neurology to philosophy, um, and it's The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. And um, I read the first part of the book, which is basically about how the brain is structured. And that's, that's fine, that was quite tough, but, it, but it's fine. Um, and I haven't read the second part of the book, um, but it's basically about, about how the structure of the brain has expressed itself in the modern, you know, modern humanity modern world or political systems or and so, so on and so forth. At least I hope, I haven't read it yet, but I hope that <laughs> micro-review does it, does it justice. Um, I've got a few inklings about the direction of travel in there. And I, I more and more have a feeling that there's a very strong sort of network of links between um, the, develop, the growth of agriculture, um, which, as is recorded in the in the record of bones, uh, correlates with a shrinking of the human brain. The mm. Cranial volume starts shrinking about ten thousand years ago, or something in that order, about the same time. And um, behavioural changes in humans that go together with agriculture, like different types of cities and people living in fixed places, and, and so so on, and therefore ending up with things like wars and politics and uh, maybe religion and things like that. So um, I get a very, I get a, my hope is that um, this book will, will give me some interesting ideas in, in, in that direction. I think it probably will. Um, and, but I think that's an area, you know, I can't remember who, who first made it, said it's a joke, but uh, it's, it's, actually, it's actually very true that wheat's one of the most successful species in, uh, on Earth because, look, it's managed to manipulate us to grow an awful lot of it. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, <laughs> fleet's not in danger of dying out. Yeah. We're, not, we're not going to let that happen. Now, of course, that's slightly, you know, that's slightly a joke. But on the other hand, <laughs> it's not really. Um, and when you, when you hear the stories of, uh, um, you know, microbes changing behavior of animals um, uh, in their favor, um, that of course, of course that happens. Um, and I think uh, the, 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 uh, the, that there are certain foods. Now, I, think, I think you can actually make the argument quite clear. If you start with some foods like wheat, maybe vegetable oil, things like that, which certain people like eating, right? And sugar. Mm -hmm. and you go, you take steps away from that to things that are more routinely described as, as, as psychoactive. Um, so, so alcohol, right? Um, and you think, well, you know, that has a profound effect on the brain and can lead to addiction. And, um, and that's not controversial. Um, and then you can go even further into, um, you know, certain drugs, which, for example, shamans and ancient uh, civilizations might have might have used, you know, for part of their function. And you've got this gradation. And I, I'm not sure where it stops. And I, I think wheat might be in that, might, might be a member of that set of, 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 of psychoactive substances that, that, um, that we've become very used to now but that maybe first exposure of, of humanity to i don't know if wheat's the, the the best example but first exposure of, of, of humanity to wheat um may have uh, had, had actually very profound effects on the development of the human brain mm -hmm. that's a fascinating thought yeah. and i suppose what you're saying is you're asking the question, did we domesticate wheat or did it domesticate us? And I guess you don't mean that there's some kind of wheat evil genius in this wheat layer who planned it all, but just that, you know, evolution is this dispassionate process whereby things that um, are able to survive do survive. And if they discover some mechanism, like for example, using 7 billion meat puppets to uh, crave it, and yeah. grow it systematically yeah. instead of uh, picking off um, weak bovine, um, then all the better for the wheat. That's right. I mean, evolution should, should never, you should never place a limit on what evolution can do because everything will be tried, right? There's plenty of time. doesn't take long to, to try to see something whether, whether something works. And so every experiment will be done by evolution then that's conceivable. And if you look at the complexity of some of the epigenetic processes, you realize how bizarrely complicated things can be, things can mm -hmm. emerge, and it's only because there was time for them to emerge. And yeah, the fact that you've got uh, a plant or a series of plant species, if you can call wheat species because of the strange genetics that wheat has, um, and the um, and an animal as uh, interacting, yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing special about that. Um, so yeah, in a sense, it's it's like the the fungi that inhabits uh, species of insect and make them go 
local and climb to the nearest high up branch, bite down on it, and then the sporing um, filament comes out the back of its head. It's absolutely disgusting. But, um, you know, it's not quite as extreme as that with wheat and us, but I mean, it's, uh, it's in some ways it comes close. And you're talking mm-hmm. about evolution, having time to try everything. Occasionally, I, I mean, I might be strange, but I definitely am strange sometimes. But um, the, the, the idea of how long these time lengths are does boggle the mind. You know, there's um, I've sometimes try to think, well, what's a million years like? And so I think, well, I can just about get around the idea that a couple hundred years ago was, you know, Napoleon and then go back a thousand years in the mid- Middle Ages. Middle Ages and then go back 2000 years. Okay, that's another, that's a fair whack, but that's, you know, Jesus and, you know, all that and Roman times. And then go back a bit further, you're talking about the Egyptians and the Greeks. And, but then really you're at the start of civilization. You're only a few thousand years ago. Yes. You know, yeah. you're very far off a million, very, very, very far off a million. You get, you just lose count if you try to go back a million. Never mind a billion, never mind billions. I mean, there's a, there's a whole epoch in the Earth's evolution called the Boring Billion where hardly mm-hmm. anything happened evolutionarily. And it's like, you know, it takes your breath away, really, and uh, you can't fathom it. Um, so evolution's amazing, and we're just caught up in it. Yeah. I wonder what we can do. I mean, I think there's like, there's a tension, isn't there, between collective, uh, collective decisions and individual decisions? Because... What's good for the goose isn't always good for the gander. Yeah. And I know that, you know, when, when you started pointing me, because I was already sort of trying, dabbling with paleo eating, but the, the penny didn't, the planets didn't really align until I, I uh, checked out some of the stuff you were talking about and went low carb as well as paleo. And then it just pinged into place and everything kind of, my health did a, a 180 really. Um, and I'm very grateful for, you know, I know that you weighed it up and you were uh, unsure about which way to go with it, but I'm very grateful that you, you know, you shared that information with me. And, uh, but, um, you know, not, ev- not everyone's going to, not everyone's going to go down that route. Um, and so, but something I'm hopeful about is that um, once you let that information out of the bag, you can't re- very easily put it back in, you know, it's just too widely shared. And I think yeah. some, some people talk about how Atkins, uh, the Atkins diet failed, you know, in a sense, because although it was one of the most popular diets of the, of the late 20th century, um, it, it didn't filter into the, the wider uh, culture permanently. Yeah. Whereas I think the fact that we've got the internet now means that there's much more of a chance of that taking root properly. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you think about that. No, I think it's absolutely right. I mean, when you hear when you hear about uh, even if the story's not good, when you hear about Facebook groups of was it seventy five million people being closed down uh, because <laughs> for, for 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 who knows what reasons, but that that was a low carb diet focused you know group, then that that really does give uh, quite a lot of of of, of hope. But um, you know, when you're starting to reach, when they're starting to when there is reach out to millions of people tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, then that, that, that has made a difference, clearly. Um, I mean, at some level, everyone's responsible for their, themselves. And, you know, so at the end of the day, people will, 
will uh, evaluate the information they get and make a decision, you know, or, and, and, you know, so then they, they can't, they can't sort of, uh, it'll be a long time until there's been recovery from, from the current, you know, from the current health crisis. Um, for, for that reason, because, you know, I think people just will be very resistant to a change in the story. Why should I do this? Because I've been told to do that for the last 20 years, you know. Um, but I think uh, as long as the information's available for people who are receptive to it uh, in a form that, you know, is, can be evaluated by people and if they, especially if they can get help from I think one of the most encouraging things is 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 doctors who are who are uh, willing to help. Yeah, I guess there are a lot more who are willing to do that privately, yeah, quiet and uh, rather than publicly. But but there are so many that now are doing quite publicly, um, and provide some uh, reassurance to people who who don't have the confidence to make the step themselves. Um, you know, because it, it's it's a complicated and confusing uh, picture, and in some level, I mean, in some ways, it's very simple. You know, think how people would have eaten ten thousand years ago, and try to somehow approximate that. Yes. Uh, you know, and and that, but it's not that simple because if, we, if you look around and you ask what what food existed ten thousand years ago that you could buy today, the answer is, well, beef. <laughs> you know, lamb, pork, uh, eggs, because you know the number of plants that are, yeah, I suppose tropical fruit probably did, but mm -hmm. for us northern latitude people, uh, the number of plants that are the same as they were, I suppose I can go into the garden and can pick well strawberries, but I'm not exactly mm -hmm. going to thrive. I'm not exactly going to thrive eating, <laughs> eating those. Um, but there's really not very much food that's that's other than novel mm -hmm. except except for meat yeah and i think um you know the when i quit smoking it was actually it wasn't that had nothing to, to do with the health really health thing i read this paper that said that something like 90 percent of the dopamine in your brain is produced when you smoke a cigarette if you're addicted to nicotine and I was disturbed that for such a, an important neurotransmitter like dopamine, which is responsible for a lot of your emotional life, that I was effectively relying on cigarettes to regulate it almost totally. If that paper was right, I thought that was disturbing. And so I wanted to quit just almost purely on the basis of reacting appropriately to what was happening in my life yeah. uh, emotionally. And there was a lot of other stuff going on to do with uh, the dysregulation of my met metabolism through how I've been eating for years. And that was the next hurdle that I faced. And that's more or less where, when I started my PhD. But mm -hmm. um, the, the, the addiction is real and it's strong. And, it, you know, um, you, you, you were able to return to work uh, and go running 10Ks after being bedridden. And you were still dreaming about cake. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, it's kind really of bizarre, isn't it? Um, and as far as I can recall, I the other thing my dream 
as part of all this, I had some problems with uh, zinc because it was quite often zinc. Um, um, I don't like to talk about supplements at all because I think it probably pretty individual things and most supplements are useless for most people most of the time. But um, I, I got some pretty clear evidence that I had some trouble with zinc and vitamin B6, which kind of go together. Um, and one of the um, uh, one of the several objective um, effects there um, was dream recall. And apparently it's, it's kind of classic that your dream recall depends on, on, on uh, zinc status. I don't remember why, but apparently that's reasonably well established. And um, um, certainly since my dream recall improved, I, the only food I remember dreaming about is cakes. There's an irony there that you had to cut out the cakes before you could remember dreaming about them. That's cruel. Yeah. <laughs> But those dreams are, are becoming less and less frequent. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Probably about twice a year now, so it's pretty much decayed away. Yeah, even if the even if the amount of cake in the office is going up all the time. No, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm oblivious to cake now in real life. <laughs> in dreams, I don't even notice it. And it, it it's funny because I see all these. It's a bit like the orange juice on the on the advertising board that. It didn't strike me as a thing you would want to consume. Yeah, that was my reaction to it. It was actually slightly nauseating and slightly, you know, like a, a reaction to something that would be dangerous or toxic. Yeah. Uh, so when I see people, if I see cake on a table, it doesn't strike me as something that's actually edible. I see people eating it, but it doesn't make sense anymore. It just it's, it's become very abstract. Yeah, similar for me actually. Same with pizza, or I mean. Maltesers, all these things that I used to just inhale. Um, uh -huh. they, they, they look like uh, they might as well be plastic, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. It's not, it's not food. We, I mean, talking about plastic, I, mean, I think the brain is very, very plastic. And we, uh, in the other sense, and we, we, we adapt to these things. And it is actually quite shocking how strong that adaptation can be. Yeah. You know, that you actually, you, you build up a tolerance to an expectation that, that pizza is food. Uh, and things like that and it, it kind of makes sense at the time but when you detach yourself and move away from it you realize that in no sense does it make sense um, yeah you know it's not even well i don't think it's particularly tasty or or anything like that it's just you know it's just a way of stuffing your face with with calories indeed and getting that getting that um that hit whatever it is um well, I mean, that's been that's been two hours and twenty minutes. Uh, and it's flown in. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time, and again, I really appreciate you uh, making what I thought were very bizarre statements about nutrition about five years ago when I was in earshot. Um, well, it's been, I mean, it's certainly been it's been great to see you. Um, you know pretty healthy from the outside anyway it looks like and and get your business up and running which is fantastic um and you know obviously wish you again all the best fortune with that um whatever way you whatever way you take it um because i think you know you're i mean i only when you were when you were when you were uh 
um, at, at King Tut. So I, I only managed to come once, but I did very much enjoy having lunch and the food was good. More vegetables than I would normally have eaten, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's, it was good and wholesome. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, I think that's a good thing to do and help people in more ways than they know, probably, when they're, they're eating the food. So that, that's great. And yeah, it's been a great pleasure just to, to chat about uh, a wide range of um, admittedly fairly heavy topics, but, um, you know, it's, um, it's a serious business. Yeah. Um, is there, I, I'm not sure if, if you're really promoting yourself in any particular way in this regard or whether you want people to kind of find you online, see what you're talking about? The, the, the only online presence I've got, and you can tell when I tell you the, the handle, you can tell how, uh, how desperate I am to be found because it's got two underscores in it, right? And <laughs> apparently that's the number one rule of Twitter, right? You don't have underscores in your name because no one can find them on a phone. Um, um, but I am, I, I, I'm on Twitter mainly to follow. If you look at the people I'm following, it's, it's, uh, most of them have been mentioned in this, in this podcast. And I regard it as, a, as an efficient uh, information input. Yeah. And I occasionally interject in, in discussions and so on to, when I think I can make some kind of point, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. <laughs> uh, but so I'm, I'm at Ken, uh, capital K-E-N, underscore, underscore, strain capital S T R A I N on Twitter. Um and uh I'm, I'm not particularly seeking followers, but you know <laughs> we can I do have conversations about food there. Yeah, great. Um well yeah thanks once again and uh I guess um we can maybe revisit it in a few years when when we find out that everything we're talking about is uh, outdated and we need to update it. Of course. Sounds like a great plan. Brilliant. Okay, thanks, Ken. Cheers, Ali. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. The podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. Paleocanteen.co.uk is the UK's one-stop paleo and low-carb food provider where you can get restaurant-quality meals and grass-fed Scottish beef and lamb delivered chilled to your door. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks. See you next time.